It is good to be with you this morning. Sound like this thing is working. You have to forgive me. This is my first time to use this newfangled microphone. It feels different, so it take me a little while to get used to it. But if you have your Bibles this morning, and of course I hope that you do, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Colossians. We are now in chapter uh, 3, where James began for us last week, and we are in a new New territories of uh, Colossians. We are now in the the practical section of Colossians, the application section, as we have talked about these past couple of weeks. As uh, as Paul has laid a a theological doctrinal foundation for us, and so this morning uh, we we turn uh, or last week we turned the corner as James uh, laid out for us this um, the beginning of chapter three, putting on the new self and. We uh, even called a little audible in our preaching schedule, and I need to thank Adam. Uh, Adam and Evan are, are both always ready to go. Uh, I think they probably wake up on Sunday mornings hoping that uh, one of us call in sick. Uh, they always have a sermon ready. But, um, uh, but Adam was, was scheduled to preach next week, but, um, but I asked him if I could take uh, this, this next, uh, two, these next two weeks because they kind of all go together as we are kind of getting into this section of putting to death and uh, and really it's kind of putting to death as we'll see here in verse 5 this list of things and uh, and continuing to putting to de- to death another list of things which leads into wherever we'll ta- Evan will take us putting on something another list of things so Paul's going to bring these three lists starting here in verse 5 and so we've kind of made some changes and so uh, so this week we start kind of this uh, this little two-part series on putting to death the old man, or putting to death the flesh, if you will, if you want to put a title to this morning's sermon, putting to death the flesh. And so uh, a special thanks to Adam to, to letting me uh, go these next couple of weeks. And so this morning as we start, uh, as we start this little two-week, uh, two-parter, if you will, putting to death the flesh. And so it is exactly about that, putting to death the flesh, our old self. And last week, as James started chapter 3, uh, it, was, it was about setting our minds on the things above. Because we were, as you see in verse 2 there, set your minds on things above, not on things on the earth. We see that, that the old self is dead. As, as we've seen in Colossians, Paul has been talking to the church. It's for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. And so he has begun talking about death. And so the first thing about death is that we as believers, we have died already. And so we're going to continue this theme of death this morning as we continue talking about putting something or someone to Death. And so as we talk about putting to death our old self, the flesh, this morning specifically, we're going to be looking at putting to death sexual immorality. And we're going to talk about that this morning. That's going to be the theme of our text this morning in Colossians 3, 5 through 6. It was very relevant to the Colossians, to the, to the church of Colossae. And guess what? It is still relevant to the church of today. They didn't just figure it out in the first century church. It is still very relevant relevant as we deal with putting to death 
these issues of sexual immorality. Now, we don't know exactly if the believers of Colossae, if they struggle specifically with any uh, certain uh, area of sexual immorality, like we know the church of Corinth did, and, and we haven't gone through Corinthians yet. We will one of these days. Uh, but Paul does address the issue of sexual morality in almost all of his letters in the New Testament. Specifically, in all of his letters to specific churches, in almost all of them, he addresses this issue of sexual immorality to the churches, to the church at Rome and Corinth and Galatia and Ephesus and Colossae and to the church at Thessalonica. He specifically addresses sexual immorality actually in every single church except philippi philippi is the only church he does not specifically address this issue of sexual immorality um he so this is the issue he keeps coming back to to these churches that he is writing to uh, this is an issue that is, again, not just an issue for, for the first century church. It's an issue for the 21st century church. Sin still abounds. Sexual sin still abounds. And so Colossians 3 will help us to see how to put this sin to death. And as we said, this, uh, uh, this Paul is now in full-on application mode. He has laid the groundwork for us in Colossians 1 and Colossians 2 on this doctrinal, theological um, groundwork of who Christ is. Because you really can't just jump into putting uh, sin to death, any kind of sin, whether it's sexual sin or any sort of sin, unless you look to Christ first. And we'll look to Christ plenty this morning. And so you have to start with Christ. And this is what Paul does, not just in Colossians. It's what he does in all of his letters. He always starts with a rich view of Christ. And so we have done that in our time in Colossians. And he has done that, of course, in this letter. And so uh, something else I'd like us to take a quick uh, uh, look at is, is this issue of sin in general. We, we talk a lot about sin uh, as we go through God's Word, and sin is, is something we all deal with as believers, but as believers, we need to have a, a rich theological gospel-centered view of sin. And oftentimes, I'm convinced, we don't have a gospel-centered view of sin. Oftentimes, we have a, a guilt-ridden view of sin. Something we've said uh, many years ago, I don't think we've used this, uh, uh, this uh, alliterative view, if you will, uh, of sin, are the three P's of sin, the penalty, power, and presence of sin. Um, and that is that, the, that Christ is taking care of all of these things. You can even look at the past, the present, and the future nature of sin. That in the past, Christ is taking care of the penalty of sin. Go with me real quick to Romans. Let's, just, let's do a brief uh, look at these three things because it is so important to understand these three natures of sin. When you look at Romans chapter 8, first couple of verses, says there is there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death and we know and Paul has reminded us of that in Colossians that we are in Christ that we have died to ourselves and we are alive in Christ and our life is hidden with Jesus. And so he has, he has freed us from the penalty of sin. If we are in Jesus, we are forever free from the penalty of sin. 
If you are in Christ, when you die, you will never have the penalty of sin to be put upon you because Christ died for the penalty of sin. That is justification. Now, as we move on from the penalty of sin, we can look at the power of sin and go to Philippians. There's one book to your left, Philippians chapter 2. We talk about the, the power of sin. Because the power of sin is something we still actively struggle with and is present with us today. Is the power of sin. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so who is at work in us? Who is the one who is powerfully at work in us? Even working uh, out our ability towards sanctification? It is God. It is not even on us and our ability to overcome sin. It is not even on us and our ability to, to put sin to death as we're going to see this morning. It is God. So it is Christ who is, who is taking care of the penalty of sin. It is Christ who is work in us to overcome its power. But that is something actively at work in our life now in the present tense. So, in the, so sin's past is uh, the penalty. Sin's present is the power. And then we also deal with the presence of sin that unfortunately, and this is why we have to have these sermons, this is why Paul writes about this, is the presence of sin, its very presence in our life is still here today, and it is not going to go away until Christ returns. And one day it will go away, only whenever Christ returns. Sin will be present, will be be ever present until the return of Christ. And he will return one day and sin will be no more. Tell me real quick to 1 John. I just love this verse. First, first John chapter three. Towards the end of the New Testament there. First John chapter three, verse two. You see this picture of Jesus. I think I wrote down the wrong reference. I love the verse so much. I wrote down the wrong one. That so he is present with us whenever he comes. Sin is no longer. Remember I told y'all two weeks ago, one of my greatest fears is that I give you a reference and I write down the wrong reference in my notes. Well, here's the truth, church. When Christ returns, (laughs) the presence of sin is no longer. And this is the hope of the glorification of Christ. And so we see the justification, the penalty of sin is no longer. We see the sanctification is that God is at work inside of us. The power of sin is that he is working that out. And we see the glorification of sin, that the presence is no longer in our freedom from sin. That is the hope. And so that is a reminder that I want us to see as we talk about putting sin to death, that ultimately it is not on us. And that is the hope that I want us to see. We do not need to leave this place thinking that it is on our shoulders. But it is a very active reality. It is a very present reality that sin is amongst us. And it's very powerful and very real. And Paul gives us a very active command here. He gives a command to the Colossians church. And the the church is very present for North Hills today. That we must put it to death. And so... With that in mind, let us read our text this morning, and we'll pray, and we'll get into it. So, 
Colossians 3, 5 through 6 this morning. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. I thank you for a chance to open your word. And as we turn now to Colossians 3, and as we, we look at this, this passage on, on the sins of the flesh and the sins of the old man, Lord, that are still present in our life and still rear their head, that you help us to see by your word how we can put these to death by your spirit. We thank you for Christ who has overcome these who has paid the price, who has paid its full penalty, who works in us for our sanctification and who will one day return for our glorification. So now by your Spirit, would you lead us to this passage? In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. So as we look at this text this morning, and again, this is, we're going to, verses, verses 5 through 11 kind of, kind of go together here there's these two these two major lists and verses uh, verses seven and eight are going to kind of or verses six and seven are going to help us bridge these two lists and so there's definitely going to be some overlap here but uh, this morning in our time in verses especially verse five as we look at this first group of five five things uh, to help us through this we're going to see three things the first of which as we talk about putting to death the flesh is there's the message of putting to death the flesh. The message of putting to death the flesh. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So this is his message. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he lists five things. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So what, what does this mean? He gives this first list of five here. And we're going to see there's these two negative lists, as, as we mentioned. He's going to list another one there in verse 8. And we'll see a positive list that later on in chapter uh, 3. But what is this list? Now what's interesting there is he says, put this, put this to death. He says, therefore, put it to death what is earthly in you. Literally, what he says is put to death members that are on the earth put to death these members that are, that are on the earth now that's uh if you were to take that literally that's not a very encouraging thing for the church right paul the apostle who's never been to the church of Colossae, who's writing to the church is writing to this pastor kill your members <laughs> that's not what he says paul is a uh, is one who uses many metaphors in his writings and you've got to remember, he's connecting to what he's already said here in verse 3. He says, you have died. So he, he's connecting to this death that he's already referenced. says, you have died. You, you have died in Christ. Your life is hidden in Jesus. So, so you have died. Now put to death what remains in you. You have died. So put to death what remains in you in your flesh, in your old person. And we know Paul talks elsewhere in Corinthians about, about the new man, right? And about the new man that is, is born again. We're going to see this later on in chapter 3. And be reminded of the new man putting on this new self. And that, that is the believer. 
If there is not a new person in you, if you can't look at your life and say, there was an old me and now there's a new me, then you're likely not a believer. I would even change that and say, you're not a believer. There has to be a new you. So the old you is dead. You have died. You've been risen in Christ. The new you is hidden in Christ. And now he's saying, put to death, therefore, what is left in you, what is earthly in you. So there's this, this call, this command, these members that are on the earth. This continuation of the fact that we have died in Christ. Now, he doesn't list five, five different types of sexual sins. He doesn't even list five different types of sins. What he lists here is kind of a, a progression of, of, of sinful activity. And hopefully it'll, it'll make sense here in a minute of, of, what this, of what this progression looks like. But let's just start with the first thing he lists. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality. That's what he starts with. The word he uses is porneia. Word that we're kind of the root we're used to, and even in the 21st century, the word we're uh, pornography is the word that we're most used to. In the Greek world, they is a word that they got prostitute from, or prostitution, sexual sin. And so in this progression here, it specifically referenced an act. It it referenced a an act of sexual immorality. So what Paul starts off with in this conversation, he is saying, put to death any acts of of sexual sin. So any sort of sexual activity outside of of the bond or the covenant that God has has brought together, any sort of, of sexual activity outside the bond of marriage between one woman and one man, that is that is. What Paul has in mind here, that is sexual immorality. We don't say it often or often enough here at North Hills. Sex was a, is a good gift given by a good creator to man and woman to be enjoyed. And as we have all done with so many things and so many of the good gifts given by God, we have misused it and we have perverted it in every single possible way. And the context here of Colossians is sexual morality. We could take so many different things and we could apply this truth to. But what Paul has in mind here is sexual morality. We could take food. We could take so many things. Take money. We could take work. And we twist what God gives us. And we misuse it. We misalign it. We use it for our own interests. And it all leads ultimately to what we're going to see in just a moment. It all leads ultimately to idolatry. Because we pervert these good gifts. And that's what God gave man and woman was a good gift. But we misuse it and we pervert it in every possible way. And this isn't just a today issue. This was a problem in the first century. Sexual sin is 
such an issue that it was actually one of the specific commands given to the Gentiles. Go with me to Acts chapter 15 real quick. We actually have a lot of ground to cover, so I need to speed up. So go with me to Acts 15. And we've talked about the Jerusalem Council uh, past few weeks. Jerusalem Council, the Gentiles are being saved. They're trying to figure out what to do with these Gentiles. Never seen this influx of, uh, of Gentiles before. They're, they're coming to know the Lord. And so what do we do with these folks who aren't following the law? Jerusalem Council meets, and here's the verdict. Acts 15, 19, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those, the Gentiles, who turn to God, but should write to them to do a few things. One, to abstain to abstain from things polluted by idols, and two, from sexual immorality, and three, and from that, from what has been strangled, and four, and from blood. So that was the four things they told him to do. And so it was so important. The sexual morality, sexual sin was such an important issue. Whenever these Gentiles were being converted, when they were coming to know the Lord, when they were coming to, to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and the, the old was passing away and the new was coming about and the, they were being filled with the Holy Spirit, one of the, the four things they were told was stay away from sexual sin. Flee from sexual morality. They were commanded to stay, abstain from sexual morality. And just as they were commanded to stay away from sexual morality, just as the Colossians were called to put it to death, just as it was the the beginning of this progression here, we need to do the same. And And we could give lots of examples. And honestly, it's easy. In the church, when we talk about sexual morality, it's easy to look out, is it not? And oftentimes in the church, that's what we do first. And maybe that's what happened this morning. When you heard sexual morality, maybe the first thing you thought was about this group or that group. But maybe often we need to look first inwardly. And this is what Paul is calling the church to do is to put, he's not calling them to put to death other people's sexual immorality. He is calling them to put to death their own sexual immorality, their own sinfulness, the own sinfulness of their own heart and their own lives. This is a call for an inward examination. But he continues. He says not only sexual morality, but also impurity. He says to put to death impurity. This word, akartharsia, I may have butchered that, which means uncleanliness. So he gets from less specific to a little more in general. Go with me to 1 Thessalonians. A couple books to your right. By a couple, I mean one. Sorry. Just turn one page over, probably. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And you see this in several places. You see it in Romans. You see it in all these places that Paul talks about sexual immorality. Oftentimes you'll see his same use of impurity in a more general sense. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know that, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of 
This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality, that each one of you know how to control its own body in holiness and honor and not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So what Paul is saying here in Thessalonians to the Thessalonians, he is saying that impurity is, is not even just one particular act, but it is in general all of these sexual sins. And he's saying that if you disregard um, if you guard this impurity, you're not just disregarding your brother, you are disregarding God himself. And so put to death sexual immorality and put to death impurity. This uncleanness here. Impurity here is in other places. Paul is using as a broader term for sexual sins. It is less about a specific act and more about one's character. That is this progression that Paul is using here. It goes from an act to one's character. Go with me to Romans chapter 1. A place we go to often as we think about this sort of immorality. We'll just start in verse 24 there. Let's start in verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they... Talking about these people who are, who are being given over to impurities and sexual sin, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever Amen. As we'll see this continual progression in Colossians, you see it again here in Romans. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise give their natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another and men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. So again, this progression from, from these acts of, of sins of the flesh to this, this character, to the people who are just being consumed. Now he says to this passion and evil desire. And many would say there, there, there's, a, there's even a, um, there's a small line of difference between passion and evil desire. And on passion, you can go to Matthew 5, 28. And for the sake of time, we won't go there as, as Jesus references the, the lust in a man's heart and says, if you have lust for a woman in your heart, you might as well sin against her. And we see that that lust is passion and evil desire, the, the, the evil thoughts that accompany the lust in someone's heart. So you see this progression from an act to all of these acts, to your character, to the lustful passion, to the evil desires that surround it that it consumes an individual. That's why we must put them to death. 
And this isn't a message for the lost. This is a message for the church. We must put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, what remains in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire. It's important to point out that sexual morality begins in the heart. We must guard our hearts. For the believer, putting to death these sins is not a battle against sins that we readily embrace. That's important. I mean, for the most part, we don't readily embrace these sins that we've mentioned this morning. We don't readily embrace sins of sexual immorality for those in this room, for those who, who claim to follow Christ. There's always exceptions. But for the most part, the church, those who profess Christ, don't readily embrace that. But we do struggle. We do have temptations. We struggle with these sins. Go with me real quick to, I know I keep saying real quick. Hope your crock pots are on low. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so we see here that the author of Hebrews, he recognizes that we are weak people, full of temptation. And yet we can go to one who has been tempted, but has never sinned. And we can draw close to Christ. And that is what we do. We draw close to Christ. But what I don't want to miss in this list here is the fifth thing that Paul points out. It says, put to death these things, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Your translation may say greed. If you've been following along, you may say, why is greed in this list? If we're talking about sexual sin and we're talking about uh, character, and we're talking about passion and we're talking about evil desire, we're talking about all of this just heavy stuff. Why did just greed get thrown in there? Why did money get thrown in there? Well, this that's a, a misunderstanding of covetousness and greed. Covetousness is not necessarily a sin of financial greed. Covetousness is the sin of more. It is the sin of more. Go with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. One, one quick verse. James 4 verse 2. says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And so covetedness, greed, is not necessarily the sin of financial greed that we often associate it with, but it is the sin of more. It makes all things sinful. To covet makes all things sinful. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the Ten Commandments. It's the last of the Ten Commandments. Do not covet 
to quote one one pastor, he says it well. It is therefore, speaking of covetousness, it is therefore a sin with a very wide range. And we don't give covetousness its due place. It is therefore a sin with a very wide range. If it is the desire for money, it leads to theft. If it is the desire for prestige, it leads to evil ambition. If it is the desire for power, it leads to sadistic tyranny. If it is the desire for a person, it leads to sexual sin. This is covetousness. It leads, it is the sin of more. And Paul goes on even further to say that covetousness specifically is idolatry. And that's what he says here, which is idolatry. He says, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And specifically, idolatry refers only to covetousness in this, uh, in this list here. And we could, we could flesh that out if we need to. We can do it later on for the sake of time. But it's, you look at the language, it's uh, because of, of, of the structure of the language, we know that, it is, that idolatry points directly to covetousness, not the rest of the list. And so he makes this progression. He leads to idolatry, which, which is an affront to the worship of God. So how is covetousness idolatry? Covetousness is idolatry because it places our needs and our wants above that of God. Simply put, the life described here that Paul is describing is one that places his own self at the center of the universe. Everything revolves around you. Life becomes about you, about your happiness, about your needs, about your wants. And when your life is about your happiness, you are in idolatry. Whenever your life is about your happiness, you are in idolatry. And in case that doesn't resonate with you, that's contrary to the American mantra. That's contrary to the multi-billion dollar marketing platform that's in our country. Because everything that you see around you is about one thing. It's about your happiness. And that is contrary to the very gospel that we commit ourselves to as believers every single day. When your life is about your happiness, you are in idolatry. Be careful of wanting more, for it is the path to idolatry. Believers live for the glory of God, not the glory of themselves. Contentment is the cure for covetousness. Contentment is the cure for covetousness. Because that's what this, as this thing progresses, that's what it leads to is covetousness, which is idolatry. And so what's the cure? It is contentment. And we'll come back to contentment in just a second. Let's see if we can see how fast we can move. That's the first point. Got seven more. Just kidding. It's only six. Secondly, motivation. So the first one is... Um, the message of putting to death the flesh. Secondly, 
is the motive is the uh, the motivation for putting to death the flesh. I'm sorry. The message first one is the message of putting to death the flesh. Secondly, is the motivation for putting to death the flesh. And we see the motivation is very clear. He says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. So what's the motivation? Why I put these things to death? It's very simple. These things bring about the wrath of God. Brings about the wrath of God. Paul is very clear about the motivation behind the message. It is the wrath of God. His righteous judgment. And you can see in Romans chapter 1 verse 18 that the wrath of God is being poured out amongst sin and sinners. Good Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, let's just turn there real quick. I don't want to be short for the sake of being short. So just go room in real quick. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he, looking, future, looking forward towards Christ, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And, by, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shear is silent. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. Uh, he was taken away and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living stricken for the transgression of my people. And he made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man and his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And so the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus, was poured out upon Christ. So not even talking about the wrath of God that is poured out upon sinners, but the wrath of God was poured out, that the, was poured out upon Christ. He took our wrath that we could not take, that we could not handle. And so as we think about the wrath that Christ took on our behalf, this is the why that we put this sin to death. This is what motivates us to put this sin to death. Because Christ died for that sin. If that does not motivate us, if this does not give us a hatred for our sin, then what will? Christ died for our sin. He took on the wrath of God for our sin. These works of the flesh are not to be taken lightly. Unbelievers will be judged according to them and Christ died for ours. The motivation for putting to death the flesh. We see this in Colossians 3. We see the message of putting to death the flesh. And finally, we see the means of putting to death the flesh. So how do we go about doing this? How do we put to death um, the, the sins of the flesh? How do we put to death the sins of sexual morality? How do we put to death the old man? How do we go about doing this? Some have thought that you literally do it. They literally attack their flesh. Some of them actually, there's, there's accounts of them wearing belts that had prongs in them that dug into their flesh that reminded them how wicked their flesh were. Some whipped themselves and did all kind of um, 
what we, what we, what we would call crazy things to inflict pain upon their, their fleshly bodies. But we know that this is not what Paul was talking about. This is not what God's word was talking about. So how, how can we put to death the sins of the flesh? How can we put to death sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness? A few quick, quick things. Galatians, real quick. Galatians chapter 5. I won't read this whole passage for the sake of, of our time this morning. We, read, we go to Galatians 5 quite often. But if you start in verse 16, if you want to jot this note down. But Galatians 5, 16 through 25, just a great reminder of keeping in step with the Spirit. Paul says to the church of Galatia, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And he lists those desires of the flesh. He says, if you are led by the Spirit, and he lists what those uh, fruits of the Spirit are. And in verse 25, for if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. And so how do we put to death um, these, uh, these, um, the, 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 the fruits of, uh, of our flesh? How do we put to death the sins of the flesh? First of all, by walking in the Spirit, by living in the Spirit, by remembering that we have died to self and that we are alive in Christ. By walking in the Spirit. If I could just give you three things, maybe easy to remember. Be connection, confession, and contentment. Connection, confession, and contentment. And I don't just say these three things just to, to be alliterative, but, but literally, I think these three things are, are helpful to us to remember of how we can put these things to death. Because as believers, we should every day have a desire to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in us. Connection through the Word of God, through, through prayer, the Spirit, and to other people, to the local church. Connecting to God through the Word. How do we connect to God? He has revealed Himself to His people through His Word. That is how we connect to God. Primarily is through His Holy Spirit, through His Word. We connect to God through prayer. By going to Him, He invites us, He commands us to pray. He teaches us to pray. He models for us to pray. He calls us to pray. He's given us the Spirit. He sent us the Holy Spirit. He's indwelled the Holy Spirit in us for connection. He's given us the local church for connection. Not just to be a member, not just to have a, a place to go, but to truly be connected to. And not just connection, but confession. James chapter 5, verse 16 says this. It says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Say, hold up, preacher. I was okay with connection. I was okay with that. I can come to church. I can get connected to a community group. I can even go to a connection group and get bonus points. But I'm not going to confess anything to nobody. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. James 5, 16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And so if we want to put sin, our sin to death, if we want to put these serious sins to death, 
of sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry and will consume us, then connection is not enough. We need to confess our sins one to another. We need to confess our sins to the Lord. He has forgiven us. He has he has released the penalty of sin in our life. But if we want the sanctifying work of the, the Spirit of God to free us from the power of sin in our life, then we need to do what His Word says and confess our sin. And then finally, contentment. Contentment is the cure for covetousness. I want to read you what a Puritan, um, Puritan wrote many years ago. It says this. And this is, we could discuss this. Uh, I don't love the beginning of his, 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 line, his, um, his quote here because I don't want to say that this is more important than, than worship, but this is very important. I'm just going to read his quote. You worship God more by contentment than when you come to hear a sermon or spend half an hour or an hour in prayer or when you come to receive a sacrament. These are acts of worship, but they're only external acts of worship to hear and pray and receive sacraments. But contentment is the soul's worship to subject itself thus to God in active obedience. We worship God by doing what he pleases, but by passive obedience, we do as well worship God by being pleased with what God does. And the last passage I'll turn us to is 1 Thessalonians. It's the end, of the, the end of that passage we looked at a while ago. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12. He says, and to, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. There is this beauty in contentment. And just in working through this text this week and just thinking through what contentment is and how contentment is the cure for covetousness and how covetousness is the is is the ultimately the end of is the is the fulfillment, if you will, of idolatry. And how Paul says he's learned to be content in all things. And I think there's something for believers that we need to learn to be content in what God and His sovereignty has brought into our life. And that is just, that is contrary to what our culture screams at us. And if we can do that, I believe that will go a long way in putting our sin to death. So through connection, confession, and contentment, these are some of the means of putting to death the sins of the flesh. So we see the means of putting the sin we see the means of putting to death the flesh. We see the motivation for putting to death the flesh. And we see this message of putting to death the flesh. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for a chance to be together, Lord. I thank you for this, for your word. You know, I know it's, um, it's been heavy this morning. Lord, sin does abound in all of our lives. Thank you that you've not left us alone. You've given us each other. You've given us your word. You've given us the spirit. You've given us so much. And Lord, you have already completed the ultimate work on the cross. So even this morning, Lord, as we sing and as we come to the table and are reminded of what Christ has done, may we be so full 
of joy this morning and of humility for what Christ has done for us that we desire to put to death anything in us that you hate. We respond in faith this morning to your word. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.